Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. after something is it revenge money or is it something else you look good a little rough around the edges 
Been good. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? Ahoy, me mates! Step aboard another episode of The Film Board from the Next Reel on Rashpixel.fm. We spoil movies, and tonight we're testing the limits of our Star Wars vocabulary to explore everyone's favorite Karelian vessel and discover the history of the Han traveling solo. My name is JJ, and let me first just introduce you to our wonderful hosts. Here's the fun bunch. Say hello to the people Pete Wright. <laughs> That's fantastic. I've been practicing with my dog. I love it. Hello, Andy Nelson. Hey, I am ready to start my own robot rebellion. Hello, Steve Sarmento. I'm here, and I think we can complete this podcast in under 12 parsecs. Before we get started, please be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash the next reel. We are asking for people to join us on our podcast journey by giving some love uh, in the form of money, of course, to support this show and all of its film follies. We've got some new ideas for interaction with our content uh, here and there and everywhere and our hosts as well. And we want to share it with you. So check us out at Patreon and thug with us today. So let's jump right into Solo. People are calling out franchise fatigue here how tired are you guys let's hear your initial thoughts steve what'd you think well I, let me say if if i had taken time to contemplate the character of han solo and everything that i knew about him in preparation for having to write this film uh i don't think i could have come up with anything different this is to me the logical story that i would expect for everything I wanted out of a Han Solo story. It's, you know, how do you get somebody as an orphan to develop into a man that would eventually become general for the rebellion and have that told? Well, for me, it gave me everything that I was expecting. Does he become general for the rebellion? General Solo? General Solo. Yeah. yeah. He is general Solo. In, uh, Jedi. Yeah. Really? I never, I didn't pick up on it. See, that's, that's what I'm thinking about here with this movie. There's so much with which to draw. So I, I, I'm really glad to hear that, that hit on some of those points for you, Steve. What about you, Andy? What did you think? I had a lot of fun with this movie. I didn't love it. I, you know, I think they did a really good job of kind of creating this world with Han Solo, continuing the Star Wars world and this, this period between, uh, I guess between Empire or uh, episode three and Rogue One, where we kind of see a little bit of this story of him. I loved the the um, the elements that they created with the uh, what were they the Crimson Dawn? Is that right? Right. Yes. Crimson that Dawn. group. Um, it just it it added to kind of these elements of the kind of the underworld that we've seen a number of times, like with the huts and stuff in some of the other films. Um, but here we kind of get uh, just a, a dark CD world that had some stuff that I thought was really exciting. So um, I had a lot of fun with it. I didn't love it, but I, I really had fun. And it certainly is something that would be fun to watch again. Well, I think you bring up an interesting point, too, because you talk about how this one is between Episode 3 and Rogue One. And what we've been told about these anthology films leading up to this is that they're going to be standalone films. But are we creating maybe a trilogy in the middle of the initial trilogies? I don't know. That would be an interesting thing to consider. How about you, Pete? What did you think of the show? Well, I'm I'm with the other guys. As much as I, I was trying to come up with a compelling uh, a part to play that I really hated this movie, I was super critical of it, I can't do it. I had a wonderful time at this movie. My, my big criticism of the movie is not that 
uh, he, you know, is, is is not that they sort of uh, franchise fatigue. It was that it was too it moved too fast. I wanted it to slow down and give mm. me more of it. I I enjoyed being in in these new places. They it felt like Star Wars. I was I found myself really disappointed when they when we actually saw a character using the Force, even though it was small, because. I really liked this much more sort of grounded uh, solo part of the Star Wars universe. I was I was pleased. Who used the Force? Darth Maul in the recording. I think doesn't oh, he? He, yes. he uses the Force to bring his weirdo saber to his hand and then turn it on for zero reason whatsoever. Yeah, like yeah. why do you're turning it on? You're on a video call. Like you are you're on Skype. You don't need your like do, put your saber I, away. You idiot. I do that all the time. By the way, all the one time. of the things that everyone liked about my character was how cool my lightsaber was. That's right. Let me remind you how awesome I am. And look, now my saber, did you notice the saber now has like handguard, like blade guards? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Important Ooh, improvement from the original movie. <laughs> Right. Maybe this would yeah. have kept me from being sliced in half. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think okay, so that so Darth Maul's a great point there too. And I think, you know, for me, I, I really liked this movie. What I, I liked about hey, wait, it. Wait, most wait a minute, was, I need you to I need to take a breath because I did not see that coming. Really? Really. I thought you were That's gonna be I thought you were gonna be the, the one who didn't like it. No, I really, really liked it. And oh, what I'm so I like glad. about it what I like about it most is what they are doing to 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 the whole Star Wars franchise, right? And and honestly, I feel like they're making they're taking this thing that's beloved by so many people and they're making it a scavenger hunt. I mean, that's really how it feels. Uh, you know, I I think a lot of people I think there's going to be a lot of haters of this movie. I think they're going to say uh you know, this is unoriginal or I think they're going to say uh, X Y and Z about what people are just seeing derivative themes in this movie but I didn't feel that way at all. I think they're doing a great homage to the original movies by taking the things that everybody liked so much and then they're explaining them. And there's we're going to talk about a lot of them here today it, because I mean honestly there's going to be ones that are going to be hits and there's going to be ones that are going to be misses for them but for me my, my favorite thing about the Phantom Menace and people talk about the Phantom Menace pretty negatively in the in the whole canon of the Star Wars universe. But the thing that I liked was learning more about the story that I loved so much. And even if I didn't like the execution of what they did in the Phantom Menace, I was really happy to learn more about these characters and these stories that went so much into that original trilogy. And I think that's what they're doing here is that they're taking this. And so I guess one of the things that I'd start out with about that point is this whole concept of the dice, right? The dice that um, when they showed up in the last Jedi and they become this kind of focal point in The Last Jedi. Everybody gets to remember them as this initial thing that was maybe shot as an accident with Lucas hung the dice evidently in the in the Millennium Falcon. I think you guys know the story. I don't know it. But in Last Jedi, I thought, oh, this is kind of just a MacGuffin that they brought in. All of a sudden, it becomes central to the story about Han, Han Solo. So now we're getting, again, we're going to his backstory, but we're bringing it up and it's now explaining these things that we used in the other movies. I think this is possibly a new concept and a new way to approach what could be looked at as a prequel or could be looked at by the haters as derivative to say, this is that interesting thing that you had questions about before. Here's some answers. Did you guys feel that way about that? It, it, did the dice work for you as as something that was something to hang on to from, from earlier movies? 
Well, I think the dice, I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a really nice touch and, um, it is something that, um, has a lot more heft now because before it seemed just like kind of a kitschy, you know, fifties nod to the American, uh, um, uh, graffiti era of car loving that George Lucas had by hanging the dice in the window, uh, even go. if you never really saw them. But now it, it, it becomes, uh, a device that is a pass from character to character and has a lot more heft and weight. And I think that's nice. And, and it's, it's, it's a tricky game because it, it's always one of those, um, finding the balance between, okay, you're going to, you're going to give a little more backstory to the dice, but what about when you, okay, now we've got to do the Kessel run in, uh, under 12 parsecs. And, you know, we're going to hit these, these things that they're going to be checking off. And, and that's always the, the danger zone of feeling like, okay, are they just feeling like they have to go back and, and check off all the different things to make sure, okay, now we've covered this from his past. We've covered this from his past. All those things we've talked about before. Now we've covered it. But, None of it bothered me. All the all the little elements, how he got the Millennium Falcon, just all these things that you have um, throughout that have been brought up in previous films. It just it 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 was in there, and it was kind of like, oh, okay, of course he's gonna we're gonna get to see him do the Kessel Run in under twelve parsecs and whatever it is. Um, but but it was nice. They they handled it in a way in this film where I was like, you know, they did a good job with it. So I for me, as long as they're handling it in a way that that feels like it's servicing the story, then I'm I'm fine with it. I'm on board. Yeah, I agree, and I think and I think they they treated everything with with a lot of grace. They they made sure that all that stuff didn't didn't seem like it was done in a way that didn't mean to inform the audience. It didn't insult the audience in any way, especially if we start talking about parsecs. <laughs> well, right, yeah. because the idea of the the idea of the quote from the initial movie is that we're saying that we're we're actually traveling some distance. In less distance as opposed to less time. There is a theory that George Lucas actually thought a parsec was a unit of time right. uh, and not a unit of distance. And so there, there has, it feels like there's ha- had to have been a little bit of sort of retconned physics uh, to actually make that work. And the whole idea, and, and actually, if we, we should put it in the show notes, friend of the show and, and resident scientist Ethan Siegel uh, has written a wonderful post that actually attempts to demystify Einstein's relativity regarding parsecs and traveling the Kessel Run in under 12 of them. And it is, um, it, it's a really, it's actually a great way to sort of um, describe what giant gravity wells are at the center of spiral galaxies and how this is, it's actually, they've they've created a thing that could be construed as sort of real space, even though we haven't been there. And he's made it kind of work to to sort of you know make it work in the movie but they they do an awful lot of hand waving um you know to, to have this canal with lights in it this sort of tunnel it's the lincoln tunnel of space uh which is <laughs> <laughs> dubious dubious yeah i it is dubious but i'm actually happy with the way they they explained it i mean honestly if they if you know donald glover and and well lando and han can get into this question of can you do some distance in less than the distance that it actually is? They actually made like a third generation, whether it was a mistake to begin with or not, they've creatively solved that with what we've seen here. Yeah. Right? That's what I loved about yeah. it. It was, it was I so, like, I, I was like, Oh, that's something they'll never be able to fix. But it was like, Oh, they actually found a way to kind of work around that, uh, that little, you know, gaff that uh, was in the original. I thought it was yeah. really clever. I did too. I, I really did. I, I, I don't mean to, to, you know, sound all judgy. I actually thought it was a really fun sequence. 
Especially, especially the big Imperial cruiser, mind you, uh, when he when he comes out and there it is in the in the Lincoln Tunnel of space. Uh, I thought that was so beautiful. It was just a really yeah. gorgeous sequence. It was great. Darth Maul, we already spoiled it a little bit, shows up in this movie. I wasn't spoiled coming in, though, and I've always wanted more Darth Maul. Very excited to see him here. Do you know now the speculation has begun? What does it mean for Darth Maul and Kira? to be working closer together. It really piqued my curiosity to see Darth Maul turn up um, in the in the end here. I, uh, I've only partly made it through uh, the Clone Wars, so I didn't realize that Darth Maul um, had not died after he fell down the well cut in half. He, he managed to survive, and then he, like, became like... He had, like, a spider body for a while... And then his mother gave him new robot legs, which apparently I guess that's if we see him fully formed at some point, he's going to have a the the robot legs. And you can see the robot feet in the in the Skype call. Oh, that's, I missed I yeah, missed that. Okay. Yeah. The um, but um, but then he went on to kind of he was so miffed at at Sidious and Dooku that he went on to create like this crime syndicate. Um, the I can't remember what it's called. The uh, the dark they're called something they're called the dark the uh, shadow you know, collective it was the shadow, shadow collective, collective. Yeah, yeah that's right so he creates the shadow collective um which i guess you know when it's a bunch of bad guys they it didn't last very long and then i guess from there he went on to create this uh this uh crimson dawn and uh you know i don't know i i found it really interesting and i love that they're actually now really taking stuff from the other things that are canon like um, like the Clone Wars and Rebels and finding a way to integrate all of that stuff into the story here. So I think it's really clever. Yeah, it, it caused problems for me because I have not been engaging with any of that other material. So for me, it caught, I until I read about you know that information that you just you know explained about what happens to him after Phantom Menace, because as we were getting near the end of the film, I thought, okay, where does this fall in the timeline? in terms of other films because I I didn't have there was nothing to really ground it in terms of other key moments in the Star Wars timeline that I was familiar with so then when I get that I thought wait what's going on because does this mean everything that I'm seeing is prior to Phantom Menace how old is Han wait that doesn't make sense to me so it was until wasn't until I read that yes there was you know Darth Maul doesn't die in Phantom Menace and there's all this other information to give me that context of oh okay this gives me a different position in the timeline so for for me it was a little disorienting because I didn't have that information I thought it was an interesting unexpected cameo you know to sort of throw in there but because I'm just not as fluent in Star Wars, you know, chronology, it was a little uh, confusing for me. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because I, I was in the same boat as you. Like, I had no idea that he was alive. And I'm like, well, that's right. so interesting. And it just it, it it made so many questions in my head. I'm like, well, then that he must be alive because there's no way this took place before episode right. one. And right. so it just yeah. is. So I don't know. I found it kind of exciting because it it uh, led me on the, down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Yes, it did. And once I. Yeah. So I, I, I wasn't like angry or frustrated. I just was like, OK, so he either Han's age is not what I think it is or he survived. What's more likely? Well, the fact that he's alive and is around. So then that raises more questions of are there more stories to tell with him or how is that going to play into some of these other, again, as, as Pete you know, said, we've we've got more, we're delving into this sort of other canon material outside of our main, you know, Skywalker storyline. This has started to lead into some other tangential stories, which I'm excited about. 
because it's it's opening the scope of the universe of the stories that we can tell. And what I was really excited about with this particular film was what I saw in Solo was what we often talk about is exciting in the Marvel Cinematic Universe of tackling other genres. Because to me, what I was really excited about with this was it felt very much an homage to a lot of uh, noir stories out of the mid 20th century. You've got a guy who's a, a, a veteran of the of the wars. You got a femme fatale. You've got you know sort of the loner that's betrayed. There were so many I thought key sort of tropes from you know noir detective stories that I could trace through this. I thought this is this is a great approach to take with this rather than just oh we're going to tell a Star Wars story. Let's pull again from some tropes and, and genres that are appropriate for this character and embrace that and really weave that into sort of the the DNA of the story we're telling. You know, I I agree. I, I agree on on all those points and I I I I guess it's also part of my criticism because I feel like this the pace of this movie is just humbling that I don't have enough time to really fall in love with each of the elements that they're that they're giving me. Like you bring up the 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 war bit, you know, he, he leaves and he goes to war and then 3 years later he's on a battlefield. I feel like that's actually a story I'd be super interested in investing in, right? I'd be really invested in that story. The dice uh, are uh, they're they're great and we see them sort of passed back and forth between Kira and and him. They're clearly something that's important. We don't actually see where they came from. We don't see how he got them. We just see that they're somehow important. Uh, I, I would have loved to actually seen why they're important, apart from just being a, a sort of fetish object between the two of them. Uh, the gun was good. I liked how, how the gun was just sort of slid over there. The the trusty DL-44, as, as Harrelson's character, was kind of taking it apart. Um, it, it, then we, we get Chewie and the Falcon and his name. All of these things came in sort of the Han Solo checklist of the movie. And the pace was, it, it moved so quickly that I found myself at, at times both like torn in, in these two directions of, wait a minute, you guys, slow down and let me appreciate this, my my favorite character in the universe. Let me appreciate it. Give me some more hero shots. Let me actually see, you know, why don't you make use of this stupid escape pod that you've jammed in the nose of the Millennium Falcon and told us nothing about? Like, let's go ahead and and see you make, you know, see how this world manifests. My hunch is that this is a result of so many cooks in the kitchen making this movie. Uh, it, it felt in that regard a little bit scattered. And I know that I am apologizing in my own head for my feelings for what is not the level of, of just sort of production quality or narrative quality of some of the other films uh, as a result of my, um, my deep love of the characters and the actors they chose to play them, I think are fantastic. Uh, and, and so, I don't know, does this resonate with anybody? Yes, yes. Oh, because oh that's good, I, okay. Yeah. No, 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 I, because I... The whole like sort of like Dickens esque, you know, st- you know, street urchins, you know, living a life of crime for their their big overlord that's protecting them. I thought there was the potential for doing more of that story, but that's to a me, whole that's movie an- in itself. Exactly, and I, you know, condense that fine. Okay, it was sort of like shorthand for okay, he's a thief, but he's a thief with a heart of gold because he's got this girl. That was fine. We get the three year jump. And that's where my biggest issue is, because there he is in the trenches, 
encounters Woody Harrelson, Thandie Newton, and then he goes from being soldier who, you know, is stuck in the trenches, which that's a whole different interesting experience altogether of that side of, you know, the empire. But okay, I'm a soldier that isn't really happy because I don't take orders well, so I I join up with this group of of scoundrels and thieves and then I'm I'm looking at my time frame and we go from there's there's no big jumps of time. We, it's not like oh he's part of their gang for like a year. It goes from straight on the battlefield to we're doing this job, and then it's just boom, 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 boom. And there's so much growth or transformation in his character that happens over that that I felt time was really compressed. It was yeah. too many cooks and a microwave yeah. to just compress time in this. And I thought I, th- he needed more time to change, and we we get that transformation there's a lot of things that go into making han who he is uh lots of betrayals and you know making him who he is but to me i wanted more time for it to feel like that's the natural sort of emotional transformation a person would go over from trench warfare to you know on the on the beaches there at the end there's what is how many days is that? It you know, there's yeah. not a good sense of time. Is it, it's two and know, a half. <laughs> it feels like it feels like days. Thirty six. It feels hours. like it's me. Yeah, it, it it you know, with Lando and okay. But yeah, you know, it, I also, it, Steve, to that to that point, yeah. I compare this to Rogue One and and I I'm I've grown to like Rogue One even more over you know, since it since it came out. And that is a, a film with a, a about a singular mission, right? A singular experience. Right. Yeah. And I think that in contrast to this, this this is where this movie struggles. They're telling an awful lot of stories uh, of pieces in the Han Solo checklist. And again, I like them all. I really do. Yes. Uh, the the yeah, only right. the only thing I felt like they they probably could have they they could have held off. I think they they wasted an incredible hero moment. Is they shouldn't have given him the Falcon until the very last bit of the movie. They should have had him oh. in a different ship. Have really? him win the ship from Lando as our reward for making it through this part of his life. I think that would have been cool. So I, I don't mean to, oh. to armchair. Well, that would have been cool, but... but then you'd be ignoring one of the major parts of. Yeah, um, and you know and, what, JJ? That actually means we actually have to. We actually get to to really invest in some of these other elements that were given short shrift. I guess. See, and so now I, I would say, you know, I understand why that resonates with you, Steve, and, and, and what you're talking about, Pete, but it's definitely not for me. It, it, this is not a spinoff movie. This is not a start of a solo franchise. What this is, is an, what they call an anthology movie, right? So they are literally picking up the greatest hits of Han Solo from all of the movies we've seen, and they're trying to hit on all of them. So I get why you guys might be looking for that or that that would be better for you. But for me, this was exactly what I wanted to see from this movie. I didn't need to spend much more time with what we had because I wanted the highlight reel of what his history was. It it really, the pacing, you're right, the pacing was, was breakneck. Um, but I like this better than Rogue One in that it addressed so many of the things that I wanted to see the backstory of, and it and it and it hit on them, and then moved on. Um, and I didn't find that anything about this story was redundant. I felt like it did move through time. There weren't a whole lot of there weren't a whole lot of scenes that you could have pulled out 
uh, and had the same movie. It developed over time. Again, it was very fast, and they put a lot into it. But I liked every little piece, and I, I would have been really sad if we didn't get Millennium Falcon throughout the whole movie. Definitely, that's something that I would want. I really, yeah, I, I really enjoyed all those parts too. The only thing that I didn't like was how he got his name. Like that element to me that was, was a groaner. Like, oh, that, that felt super forced. That was <laughs> really? just. That was really rough for me. Um, everything else worked uh, really effectively. I had no problems. I loved how he met Chewie. I thought that was just a really unique way, uh, you know, to see how, um, you know, Wookiees largely are abused across the galaxy. I mean, we see him chained as this beast in the basement that they throw people to to get fed upon. And then later, we're, when we're on the Spice Mines of Kessel, we see the uh the the pike syndicate abusing them there and and uh, i thought that was great and and uh, i loved all of that it's just man the way that the guy comes up with his name i was like oh that was a rough one yeah but other than that i other than that i loved him i i get why you guys would think that was rough but what i i cannot think of any other way that it would happen that well, just that's, make his just name, give him a name like why man? did that have to be a thing <laughs> like why can't his last name have been solo it was so dumb yeah. i don't know i liked it I liked it. I felt like it was exactly how that story should be told. I mean, how how did we get our names coming through Ellis Island? Right. right. They, That's they, they just the heavy-handedness that I thought sure. was too yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, he well, might that, as well that, have said, yeah. "Your Han traveling coach, Han coach." <laughs> That's <laughs> we could have ended up with Han coach. Exactly. Han economy. Well, so, <laughs> JJ, I I understand exactly where you're coming from. I agree. It gave me all the story pieces I wanted. I just wanted a little bit more time. Like Han joins up with that group and maybe we go, it says like a year later, we get more time where he's built those relationships. You know, his, his really close bond with Chewie, you know, here's some guy, they just met each other and, you know, I want more time to develop that trust. I want more time to have a sense that these relationships have, you know, been developed over time. I yes, I agree. It gave me everything that I wanted. I just felt like this this time in which the story took place was far too compressed, and I thought there were opportunities to have some breaks in there to say, you know, as you say, an anthology. Okay, we've got this, and then we jump ahead three years. We've got this. We jump ahead. He's with that group pulling off heists and jobs for a year or two before they get to the the really big one that uh, is going to you know be the sort of uh, starting point for the the big you know sequence that we're going to have i just felt like to me if i've just you know bonded with chewy and then all of a sudden it's maybe a day or two later and now chewy's they're there on the planet with his people there's all these other wookies and he's like no i'm going with this guy that i've known for two days versus my people i i had trouble reconciling that choice for Chewbacca, who's out there saying, you know, I'm going on this because here's my people. I need to find them, but I'm going to leave them to go another way because this guy that I, you know, now trust more than anyone else. I I just wanted more time. Would it have worked for you then if there was another three years later, like after if he and Chewie left with uh, with uh, Woody Harrelson with Beckett? And then it said three more years later, and then it comes back. You would have, yeah, even more time, just so I get a sense of they've developed some type of familiarity that there's some bond or kinship. So that that ultimately, when Beckett betrays him, it's you know a betrayal of trust of a, a group that have worked together. Versus, yeah, you shouldn't expect to trust this guy, even though he tells you don't trust him. Uh, yeah, why is that a betrayal? Because you've only known him a little while. 
you have no reason to trust him. So is it really a betrayal versus a crew that's worked together on several jobs? Then to me, that's more of a betrayal that's going to harden his heart to the point where, okay, his his girl is leaving him. The the sort of mentor that he's, you know, grown up under, that worked with is betraying him. That gives me more reason for Han to become that isolated loner versus, well, yeah, a guy betrayed me. I had to shoot him, but I'd only known him for like three days. Here's why it works for me. Because Han is not actually an isolated loner. And that's what this movie tells us. This movie tells us that when Beckett says to Han, if you come with me, you're in this life forever. And you get this perception of the character that the, that that he is this bad guy. But ultimately, Kira says to him, I may be the only one in the world who knows what you really are, right? That you're the good guy. And the reality is, is that we have this perception of Han from the early movies that he's only out for the money and that there's all these things. But what we learn through the original movies is that he's not. And what the beautiful thing about this story is, is that there aren't those three years where he developed being a criminal. He actually just fell into it. And he's always had his heart in the right place. He always, he is the father of the rebellion. He's the one that made the choice to start the rebellion because it was the right thing to do. So all that's why I love this so much because I didn't need those other pieces of the story because what I learned about Han in this movie is that Han was the good guy the whole time and that everything else about him was perception and attitude and delivery and all those things. But it reconciles all of the turns that he makes eventually in the movie. So I totally get where you guys are coming from, especially when you talk about you know if you want more weight to the story about who he is as a character. But I felt like it was a huge reveal about who he was as a character to say he's not a bad guy. He's not a terrible smuggler. He's not a a criminal. He fell into that life because he had to. And immediately he made the turn. So that's and that's why I posed the question here for us in the notes. What does it mean to you about Han that he's actually the person that started the entire rebellion? The rebellion exists because of his choice here in this movie. I think that's huge. And that's potentially world-changing about the way that you view the entire franchise. Did it have that kind of effect on you guys at all? Not on me, because I, I don't think I agree with it. I mean, the rebellion was already in motion. He just gave them some fuel. That's who those people were. Like, they and the aliens, that whole group, they were the rebellion before Han came along. He just sort of stumbled into it and happened to make the right decision based on who he is. And I totally agree with everything you're saying about his character. He's always the guy who has a reputation, but he's the thug who comes back to help, right? That That's who he always comes back. We know that from the original trilogy. He always comes back. And uh, and so I, I just I just didn't get the weight of that decision. I thought it was it was actually it was a thing I was torn about because I wanted this movie to be less tied in with the rebellion. I found myself sort of cringing when it became a rebellion story because I just wanted the heist. Well, I, I loved that. And I, I will tell you that the things that I loved about Rogue One were the connective tissue to the story like that, too. Um, you know, we if you want to talk about this movie being the detective movie and Rogue One being the war movie, um, the things that I love about it most are when the, these genres actually connect themselves to the rebellion. That's the stuff that I loved um, about both. And I felt like there was a lot more to love in that regard in this movie. And that was what made me really happy about it. Is Was there anything that they missed for you guys 
Was there anything that uh, that on your Han Solo checklist? Is there anything that you also wanted to know, or did they cover it all? I don't think I had a list of things that I wanted to know. And if they didn't have all of these elements, like how did Han Solo, you know, get the Millennium Falcon, like a- any of that stuff, I would have been fine if it wasn't even in the film. Like if it was just a story of of Han and Chewie on an adventure. And they already had the Millennium Falcon. I would have been fine with it. Um, the fact that they gave it to us as they did, I'm still fine with it. I, I thought it was fun. I don't. I don't run into those issues when it's like, oh, they they felt they had to squeeze that in. Unless, like I said earlier, it just it feels forced. It doesn't feel like it's actually connected to the story in any way. Um, and, but I felt like everything was really connected here. So, so on the whole, I don't feel like I really missed anything. And I, I thought they actually had some nice little nods to the franchise. Um, little in jokes like I loved the little I hate you I know uh, line between him and and Lando. I was like, oh, that was that was a great little connection to the line that they have later. Um, I you know I just felt like they they threw a lot of fun stuff in there, and so yeah, I mean I I didn't miss anything. Well, and I just want to be just to to be fair to myself. Uh, I said the Han Solo checklist. I didn't go in with a checklist, and I'm right with you, Andy. I I think my my impression that they had a Han Solo checklist was really a reflection on the pacing of the reveals of these particular elements. It came so hard and fast that it felt forced at, at times. So that that's it. I'm I'm with you. I would have been okay if they hadn't had the, and anything that is missing. I I don't know. I didn't go in th- expecting anything. I, I didn't have any expectations. I knew that there were certain things that I was going to get. And because it's, you know, for lack of a better term, an origin story. So I, I know there's things that we're, we're going to see. There were things that were pleasant surprises. I mean, there's things like, okay, the, the chessboard and the Millennium Falcon. That's that's a, a nice thing because it's it's a familiar touchstone for everybody. But the for me, the one, one that was most unexpected uh to actually see Chewbacca rip someone's arms out of the sockets <laughs> yeah. uh, was was surprisingly shocking for me because yeah it's it's one thing to mention it but now I know why Han mentions it you know <laughs> don't upset Wookie you know because he's seen that happen he's speaking from experience and I I oh my gosh j- just you hear that sound and here he is with these bloody stumps I thought wow I didn't expect to see that in this movie. <laughs> But to me, it, it again, it's you learn a lot about Chewbacca. Uh, you know his loyalty from being, you know, being saved out of that those you know conditions, and just, there was a lot about him that I think you get to appreciate. You know, more than just a sidekick, you're getting more backstory and a little bit more about him. But yeah, I would just, I mean, wasn't expecting that that brutal violence in a Star Wars movie. It's fine for lightsabers to sever things, but just the. I don't know. The dangly bits of, of flesh from the limbs was su- surprising to see. <laughs> Excuse me. Get your presumptuous ass out of my seat. Oh, oh my sackcloth occipital circuit is sticking. You're going to have to do that thing again later. Yeah. All right. Course to Castle is set. Plugging coordinates in now. Just keep your pinky on the yoke. Try not to mess anything up. Whatever you say, my lady. Just let me know when you're ready to jump. Ready and... Ready. I uh, my my great surprise there was uh, uh, L three and L 3s relationship to Lando and and I should say Lando is was uh, immensely satisfying. We should talk more about that specifically. But the relationship to Lando between Lando and this and this droid was so satisfying and the best gag in the movie 
uh, is for, for my money. And the thing that caused our theater to bust up is when he says, can I get you anything? And she says, equal rights. And he rolls his eyes. <laughs> I mean, that had they paused the movie, it would have given people five minutes to laugh at the onions, uh, onion layers that you have to peel apart yeah. to get every nuance of that joke. It was so good. L3 was the uh, the continuous uh, uh, source of laughter in my theater. And it was, of course, tragic when L3 died. But but it was just there were so many moments like the other moment when L3 frees the it takes the restraining bolt off of that droid. And it was like, what should I do? And and she's just like, I don't know. Free all the others. And it creates this whole like <laughs> this robot rebellion. That was just that was so funny and it's so fantastic. And just the way that it played out in connection to the rest of the revolt and everything going on, um, uh, it just it made for a really fun character. I, I really loved L three and what they did. And this was something that I thought was pretty clever that I didn't completely catch. I saw somebody say it online that okay, so L three essentially they they pull her whatever it is, her brain module, and they stick it into um, the, the Millennium, the Millennium Falcon. Falcon so yeah. the Millennium Falcon can navigate through the uh, through the uh, Kessel Run. But what was interesting about that is, and I don't know if this is really a tie to Empire Strikes Back, but when, when C-3PO logs into to the Millennium Falcon, uh, says, uh, you know, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I wonder if that if this was somehow a nod to the fact that now the Millennium Falcon's internal computer system is talking like L three. There was a there was a chat board that uh, right at, when this movie was announced, they were talking about the Millennium Falcon, or maybe it was when the the first sort of leaked images of the Falcon were out, and they started talking about L three and that L three was going to be a, a partner to Lando. There was a a link to one of the novels that actually talks about exactly this that uh oh. that that l3 becomes the brain of the millennium falcon and um and that there was you know great hubbub about whether or not they were going to actually take this which is technically out of canon i think uh and put it into this movie and and essentially shoehorn it into canon i, I thought it was a a wonderful touch well and now the l3 is voiced by uh phoebe waller Ridge Bridge is that uh, and I I was thinking the whole time that it was actually Gwendolyn Christie. It sounded, it sounded just like, Gwendolyn. like and Gwendolyn I was and Christie, I yeah. was expecting some some switch that I, like somehow L three was going to become Captain Phasma because similar to how I felt about uh, Darth Maul when we learn in the Last Jedi that Captain Phasma has a demise that you know lasted two films or whatnot her story was very short I thought there was there's got to be something more to her character as well so I was thinking oh wow that could be great but I I think it's fantastic that now the Millennium Falcon is actually L3 too I think and and now you talk about the ownership of the Millennium Falcon as it goes through and Lando's relationship with the ship and and, and Hans are, it, there's just there's so much to it just with that simple addition of that character I think that's really special hey, you know her name is her full the uh, droid's full name is L337 I did not catch that it's it's Leet Oh, oh, nice. <laughs> Very nice. It's also the same if you flip it over. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so good. Well, good. let's talk about other people in the cast. Uh, I think it's really important for us to address Alden Ehrenreich uh, and and his take on young Harrison Ford here. Um, I was satisfied with it. I see a lot of people talking badly about his performance here and how it does not match. The seat taken. 
Nobody's in the seat that I ain't taking from. So this is, uh, Sabak? Sabak. Sabak. Got it. You played before? A couple times, yeah. Captain Lindo Carizzi. On solo. Looks like you're, uh, having a good day. I'm a lucky guy. Can I ask you a question, Captain Calrissian? Anything, Han? It's Han, but that's okay. I heard a uh, story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. Did Did you guys have any problem with the way that he brought Han to the screen? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't love him, but I didn't hate him. I thought he was fine. Um, you know, I did. I was like, you know, he's. He's no Harrison Ford from 1977, but who is, you know, and that's that's the challenge is I don't know who they would have found to really pull it off. I think he does a a well enough job of of making it work. And I think he he lives in the skin and makes it work. Uh, You know, I I, um, yeah, I don't know. I I, I guess I enjoyed him and I I didn't really have a problem. I just didn't love him. Yeah, I think, you know, it's tough shoes to fill because you don't want to do a Harrison Ford impersonation. You, you, You have to make this character your own and there's so many challenges to stepping into such a popular and well-known role and i think that it's a big ask for an actor but i you know to me i think tonally it it fit as i said this delivered in every way that i expected and hoped for it gave me what i what i wanted uh, and i th- you know that goes for his performance as well i think it there's a lot of challenges that he was facing and but for me I'm not going to put these two side by side and say, oh, there's inconsistencies between how this character, you know, is, is portrayed. For for this story, I think who Han Solo is at this time in his life. And uh, yeah, it, it worked very consistently for me because what I see is the end of this film. But you've got, you know, Lando losing L3. You've got multiple betrayals. There's a, a big shift in who he is. Uh, at the end of this film, I mean, he's going to go out and he's going to pursue this life as a smuggler. So he's still this guy with this that wants to do the right thing. And that's always consistent with his character. But I think there's a, a tremendous loss that he is continually faced with at the end of this film that is going to be, you know, it's going to have an impact on a guy. So for me, that's enough for me to say he was this person. He's going to, over the next few years, become who we see in uh, A New Hope. And I don't have any issues or, or problems with that. Well, he clearly had the most difficult job of any of the actors here because everyone else in the film is actually playing someone new. Uh, Woody Harrelson. Almost uh, Who else were you talking about? Chewbacca. He was Chewie in The Last Jedi. Oh, he was. Yeah, he, he's been Chewie. Yeah, this is his uh, fourth time if you count the video game. Well, he was the voice in the video game. He was the double in The Force Awakens. But uh, in terms of being the solo Chewbacca, he's this is his second full run. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we should also talk about Donald Glover. I, I skipped over that real quickly, but he, yeah. him doing the Billy D. Williams, I thought he wasn't doing an impersonation, and I thought that was, uh, he nailed Blando. He was brilliant. He was uh, one of my favorite parts of the film. I had such joy in watching this uh, extra meat of Lando that we never really got to see before. And I mean, you know, it's just great. And and I think Donald Glover um, really was like a perfect person. I mean, you know, I may have had some some hesitation with Alden uh, as as Han, but when it comes to Donald Glover as Lando, I mean, just spot on perfect. Everything that he did was exactly what uh, it should have been. I, I loved it. 
Yeah, I actually felt that way about both of them. I think I'm the most bullish on Alden, too. I thought he nailed it. I mean, he just crushed it to my eye. I felt like I was every bit in the movie with the young Han Solo. And same thing with Lando. Everything you heard about me is true. I mean, it was just perfect. Pitch perfect every time. Um, it, you know, even up to their last scene, which I I don't know. I, I worried a little bit in the, the last you know, gambling, the last hand, you know, when he comes out and he knows he's been had because he left the guys on this planet. Uh, Orlando knows he's been had. He's been found. The guys are mad. And I felt like we got a little bit too much of the early sort of, um, uh, I don't know, simpering Lando kind of sneaks in. And I didn't want that. I feel like he's, uh, the rest of the movie was, was too good for that. So, um, but he, uh, other than that, he was fantastic. For the other folks in the film, Woody Harrelson comes in as Beckett. I, you know, Woody, uh, I, I like most of the things he does. It, it, this character didn't, didn't need a whole lot from me um, on it. I, I was happy with what he was doing. He, he, he felt like a smuggler to me. You guys, when is Woody not great? I mean, he's he's such a great actor, and you know, it, he works brilliantly. Whether he's uh, you know a sheriff or or a, a porn king. <laughs> or a smuggler. I mean, he's just a fantastic, fantastic actor, and I, I yeah, I, he really was great here. Steve, I thought you were going to say triple nine there. Woody Harrelson is like in this golden era. I mean, you think about okay, he's. I mean, you go back ten years and you look at the films he's been in, the franchises he's been in, the 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 accolades he's been getting. This morning on the Saturday matinee, we talked about Zombieland, you know, and that's like ten years ago, and that was sort of like, oh yeah, that's Woody Harrelson. He does these little things, but he's just gone on to become like, he's got such, I don't know, respect and, and weight. And he just, yeah, you know, now if he's in something, he's just hit his stride. And yeah, I think it was a perfect casting. He handled it just, I mean, that's exactly what, what I expect. And what was really rewarding for me is he plays that scoundrel that you can't trust uh, and that just delivers it so well. I, I thought there's, you know, heck, you, and then you've got, you know, what he's in the, the Apes franchise. I mean, he's all over the place covering a range of different characters, but always does, I think, delivers the performance that is deserved for that role. I didn't realize he's also in Venom coming out later this year. Interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. Man. He's yeah, everywhere. He's working. Yeah. He likes to work. Amelia Clark, I've been hearing her described as the space Khaleesi. For this role, <laughs> I find her I find her compelling in everything she does, and I and you know she's a natural brunette. I I I thought she looked great. I thought um I thought she did really well in this role. I was really happy with Kira the whole way through. I hope you're not including Terminator Genesis. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> I've never seen Terminator Genesis. Oh, oh so terrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm with you, man. I thought she was great. I thought she was fantastic. And I found myself so heartbroken in, I think, just the right way uh, at the end. I was mad. I was so mad when she brought up Skype because uh, I I felt totally betrayed. I was like, ah, oh, the movie has totally let, my, let me down. And then I stopped. I said, oh, that's okay. That's a good thing. All right. I can take it. Like what Steve was saying earlier, it had that nice noir vibe where she kind of is that femme fatale. And, yeah. And I found it so interesting, this whole thing where she kind of had become, you know, she she escaped from her, you know, prison life before, which I found really fascinating with the giant water snake creature kind of ruling over everybody. I, I loved that. 
And then um, she escaped that to become part of the Crimson Dawn. And who knows, as they kept saying, what dark stuff that she's had to do to get to where she is. And and she knew that she could never leave it. And I loved that femme fatale element of her character. And I thought she handled it really well. And and watching that last bit, I, I thought was just uh, really touching. A lot of nice subtext I thought she had. So nobody took my bait on that. But so the the, the speculation online that I've been reading about the, the line that Darth Maul gives her, saying that they're going to work together very closely, is that th- they think that Kira and Darth Maul are going to be the parentage for Ray. No. No. <laughs> not even a little bit. Those not online people a... are idiots. They're idiots. <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah. You don't like that? Well, they, they handled no, it in the terrible. last film, I thought. It would yeah. be, be like, yeah. all of a sudden they'd have to come up with a new believe reason. believe the guy who's aligning himself with the dark side that, oh yeah, he's telling the truth. <sighs> so crazy. No. No, I think, no, to me, it, it, it her character worked so well in, in, in the, the noir sort of femme fatale. I mean, it, you know, she, there's so many times she's telling, you know, she's like, you know, there's things I know that you don't know. And, you know, she tells him it's, you know, it's all about staying in this game the longest you can. I mean, she's telling him, dropping so many clues that, you know, she's not who he remembers her to be. And she's got a, a bigger plan. And there's, you know, there's that, I guess she just almost... I guess I want to say pity that she has for him of like, he's so like earnest and wanting to be the guy to do the right thing. And she's just like, you don't know who I am anymore. And you are in so far deep on things. You have no idea. And I think it hurts her to hurt him, but that's, that's who she is now. And to me, it, it, it followed through. So, well, I have to say this film delivered and avoided for me, one of the biggest pitfalls of when you start to get into scoundrels, thieves, and, and betrayal and cons, because we have a scene where where Han is explaining his big plan to Beckett, and then we cut away, and then we come back, and Beckett's like, "Okay, but you know, there are so many ways that could go wrong." And then when we get to the big, we're gonna we're gonna do the delivery, but we're, we're we've got some plan. And then Beckett shows up, and I, I thought to myself, oh, please let this not be the stereotypical, I'm pretending to betray you, but I'm not really betraying you because it's part of our bigger plan. Right, the sting. I, the sting. I was so relieved that it didn't go that way because there's it, that is just a big pet peeve of mine because it depends on us, the audience, believing that Beckett and Han, in addition to being thieves and scoundrels, are also tremendous actors that can just play a scene really well. I'm like, no. The fact that Beckett was truly betraying him and and calls Han out and said, look, I told you not to trust anybody. Uh, To me, just rings so much truer to the type of story and who these characters are that I was breathed a great sigh of relief that it Everything was played straight. It wasn't the, oh, we're tricking you audience into something uh, that that was played straight because it it just felt more honest and true to who these people were. Well, plus it allowed for a great finale between the two of them when Han shoots first, right? It has that whole whole moment when you have Beckett starting to kind of spin his story again and then Han just blasts him. I was like, oh, that was brilliant. That That was a great way to end that. There are a lot of other great actors in this movie, too. Uh, one that I wanted to bring up was the performance of Rio, uh, the, 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 the smuggler, the, the cruise pilot, multi-armed, multi-legged guy. That was played by Jean Favreau, um, which I thought was I, – I actually really liked the character. I thought it was played a little bit too much like Rocket Raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy, though. 
Oh, I didn't think that at all. I didn't. Cool. I, they, they didn't have the same personality at all. Oh. Um, I, I I liked him. I thought he was nice. I, he was a nice fit in there. I didn't love him, but I, I thought he was fine. I was surprised to see John Favreau because I didn't I didn't place his voice at all with that character. And so when I saw his name pop up in the credits, it was a little bit of a, a nice surprise. I, I'm with you. I was surprised to see John Favreau in the same movie again here with Paul Bettany. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just watched Iron Man. And so seeing these voices or hearing the voices side by side were it was uh, it was funny. Any of the other, Paul Bettany, you mentioned, any of the other actors you want to bring up uh, in terms of their performance? Tandy Newton, I thought was great. Um, I'm having a renaissance with Tandy Newton because I'm just now getting into Westworld. I know I'm late on that, but I think her best work of her career is in Westworld. So I'm I'm a much bigger fan of hers today than I was even a year ago. Totally agree. I thought she was great and she was gone too soon, but I I liked the way, I I loved the train sequence. I thought the train heist was terrific and and, uh, I thought she took a, she took a good way out. Most of the chase scenes in this movie were really special in terms of the way they were shot. There were some great motion, uh, moving camera shots that I was really happy with. Um, the way that the camera revealed things when they were in motion, I thought was very special and very different than I had expected from this movie. Yeah, I had, uh, you know, to me, I, when we have, the, as Pete mentioned, the whole train sort of, you know, again, we're going back to sort of our, our tropes out of it's sort of the Western, you know, train uh, robbery. Uh, yeah, when you're when you're watching that and then to realize, OK, well, this was all shot. Basically, I mean, none of this is there. Uh, it's it's all computed in, uh, which gives, you know, we always come back to you can pl- when you can place the camera anywhere. Are you always picking the best place to put it and how are we oriented and everything? And to me, this was one where I always had a great sense of geography and space. Uh, there's a, there's so many things going on, so many places we are. Uh, love the whole dynamic of the, the, as it goes around those tight turns that everything is is tilting and leaning. Uh, the physics of that, uh, in the back of my mind, I thought, I sure hope this is a ride at Disney because I would be loving to ride this as a ride at Disney. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, visually, this, to me... The, the early part of the film, it may have just been the theater I was in or something. It seemed uh, the colors were a lot more muted and the images were a lot more dark. Uh, and the early, you know, sort of scenes uh, with Han sort of in the streets and the alleys, everything seemed really dark and, and, you know, not a lot of color. Everything's really muted. Uh, then later on, to me, things just brightened up uh, a lot. And it, again, it just may have been my theater that just wasn't, you know, projecting those uh early scenes uh that was my only issue sort of visually uh with this and that may have been a decision that you know they made to you know here's the grimy dark you know under you know seedy underbelly of of the city where they're they're trying to escape from but that was the only real issue uh i had i saw it on a limax screen so uh you know big images you know everything worked really well that was probably i think visually the only you know issues i had I was just going to throw out a few other people um, that I, I thought were worth nodding or throwing nods to. Um, uh, it was nice seeing Warwick Davis pop up again in the Star Wars movie as one of the uh, rebels. And uh, apparently Anthony Daniels is in the film. He plays somebody named Tack. I don't know who Tack was, but yes, Anthony Daniels is credited as Tack in there. And of course, since Ron Howard ended up taking over director duties, yeah. uh, he of course has to <laughs> get his brother in, as he always yeah. does. Clint Howard uh, comes in as Ralakili. And then great. it was great seeing Ray Park back in as Darth Maul. And Sam Witwer, who does the voice work for Maul in all the uh, animated series, he did the voice for Maul. So uh, yeah, it was nice to see all those people involved still. 
What did you guys think about the music? I thought that uh, touching on the old themes was a little bit uh, wasn't nearly as wonderfully sweeping as I've heard from some of the other uh, new movies. For example, when we see the Millennium Falcon in Force Awakens and we hear that theme, uh, it's it's just so wonderful and you know brings me goosebumps. I didn't really catch that when I got any of the old themes in this. They felt a little bit, um, I don't know, heavy. Not not really connecting to the nostalgia that I wanted. I I thought John Powell actually handled it pretty well. Um, I I do feel like I I thought Michael Giacchino uh, may have tapped into the Star Wars mythos a little more strong uh, strongly in Rogue One. But uh, you know John Powell's a, a composer who I think does some really great work, um, and so I I was pretty happy with it, even if it wasn't quite as strong as uh, some of the others. But it was there were some nice touches to it. Um... Uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I feel like uh, when I heard the original themes, um, they uh, I think you're right, JJ, they were they were not quite so connected to those big hero moments. But I also think it had it had something of an identity of its own. It veered a little bit too much to the themeless, like so many themes that you can't really tell what the themes are. I need to listen to it without the movie because, you know, so many of the other scores are imminently listenable. And I, I walked out. There was nothing really I felt to hum. Well, that's the struggle with John Williams. I mean, he was so good at creating all those yeah. light motifs for everything. Like every single character had their own little theme and, and he was able to weave them together so nicely. And yeah, I, I don't feel that John Powell really tapped into that as well as he should have for a Star Wars film. I feel like when you're in that John Williams score world of the Star Wars films, you really need to build those light motifs in and come up with really memorable themes for everything. Like Lando should have had a theme. L3 should right. have had yeah, a theme. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's a challenge for anyone who's approaching a Star Wars movie now, right? Because, I mean, John Powell does that really well in some of his other stuff. I I think sure. his his score for uh, How to Train Your Dragon is one of one of my favorites. It's extremely memorable. But the, in general, like how to jump in with this where there's already so much established, it's a, it's a completely different challenge for a composer, I think. Hey, what did you guys think of the opening uh, credits? I feel like I, I can't remember how they did it in Rogue One, but th- there was no opening... Obviously, no opening crawl because it's a Star right. Wars story, but it, they yep. did have some things they had to tell us. And instead of doing the crawl, they did the the slow grow of a couple of lines of text on three or four screens. What did you What did you think of that? I didn't mind it. Okay, I thought it was fine. Okay, I guess I did too. I it just it just felt weird. Yeah, especially with uh, when you've got a film that's already over two hours and how do you is there a better way to get that information across or is your story already so overstuffed that you can't find a way to get this exposition in there or or what's necessary to tell that you you can't show us through the world you're giving us and i guess yeah i I was sort of in the same boat where i thought okay i know there's no opening crawl how okay and i I think it was interesting because it was i'm trying to remember how it starts because it was you know a long time ago a galaxy far far away it was a time of like scoundrels or something. And I thought, okay, well that was nice, but then it started to give us more and more. And I didn't want, I didn't need that much, you know, give me, give me one or two lines and then let's get into it and everything else. Show me through your storytelling. I don't need that much. And and I think it is telling that we don't remember what they actually said. Did did we really need it at all? And in fact, Rogue One, I'm watching it right now. Rogue One has no, there, there is a beyond galaxy far, far away. There's nothing. It goes straight to a hard uh, smash cut to the planet. And what it makes me wish is that they hadn't established that the anthology movies wouldn't use the crawl because 
if they would have just made it consistent, then we wouldn't necessarily complain about it. But now it feels like a weird thing to insert in. I will say that one of the big problems I had with this movie is the way that they handled exposition at any time. Uh, early in the movie when um, when Han shows up to Kira and has smuggled his piece of this amazing energy and they have the conversation about what it means to have this they they have it in a thing where they're like sitting lines and then the other one's explaining it and it goes back and forth you know we have this money we have enough enough to buy our way off the mountain it sounds like they're doing some old musical in the way they're doing it and they did the same thing with Chewbacca when we first meet Chewbacca instead of uh, giving us his lines and subtitles when the characters can understand it they have Han repeat basically what Chewie said in English Every time stuff like that, it it felt like really unfortunate, unfortunate writing for the dialogue, um, and it, the, what you're talking about about this beginning, these beginning screens is kind of another thing where they just couldn't figure out how to do exposition in a way that was graceful with the rest of the movie. I also have no sense of the economy. It's like, oh, this is like you know, 500 credits or 800 credits, and I thought, right. Well, how much is that? Is that um, a month's wages? A year's wages? Well, that's yeah. sixty million credits. Like yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I don't know what is in between there. Right. Yes. I, I think a lot of that comes out of the the you know Phil Lord Chris Miller uh, nonsense. Is they are you know yeah. as they had these creative differences and a script that was rumored to be unworkable. And I, I mean, it's just this. This just feels to me like the rubbish that is left in from yeah from what we talked about. Just the production struggles that they had to get this thing out the door. That's how it feels too. And acknowledging that, I think they've done an amazing job with this film to bring it out and to make it satisfying to those of us which are all four of us here who care a lot about the original universe you know there are going there are going to be a lot of haters of this movie but in general they did a great job of tying these things together to satisfy people uh in and the different things that they wanted to know about Han Solo yeah and I I think that's really important to get back to the question you asked in the very beginning I don't know maybe to to attempt to to circle back to that is you know is do we have franchise fatigue fatigue and uh, speaking only for myself i absolutely don't i no, i me neither. Uh, you know i'm i am just as excited on the the uh, announcement that they're looking at doing the the boba fett movie and that there's potential for a lando movie and i i'm in for all of those i love star wars i'll take them in the summer during blockbuster season i'll take them during december where star wars owns december whatever i'll take them whenever i love star wars movies uh I'm, i'll enjoy them this movie was the turning point the opposite way for me where there's so many people who are uh, you know out there saying that you know nothing's original anymore and and I, I feel like I, I really do like seeing original stories too, but the way they told this story felt original to me because it was utilizing the things that I wanted to know more about and it, it, it kind of exploded those a little bit. Right. It, it brought those up and it told me the stories of the things that I wanted to know from this original story. We've got the Star Wars universe. We've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've got the Harry Potter universe now going into the Fantastic Beasts thing. I'm, these are things that I liked the original of. So I, I, I'm going to stop being a hater of telling these additional stories for these universes that I liked in the first place. Because the reality is, is I like finding out about them. And I'm like you, Pete. I'm in for Boba Fett. I'm in for Obi-Wan if they do it. I, I, I'm I, ready. I, I want to know about these things. And now I have a belief that they're going to tell them in ways that are interesting and fun to watch. Totally agree. Hey, real quick. I, I do need to go back real quick to a point that was brought up earlier because I was just looking around online. 
And I realized, and I knew this and I had forgotten, that the reason that Chewbacca stays with Han Solo is because he, uh, when Han Solo frees him from slavery, um, Chewbacca views that as a life debt. And and he stays with Han Solo because uh, of this life debt that he has, that he freed him from slavery. And that is something that was um, back in the kind of... Uh, Way back, I can't remember when that first came out. I think it was in some of the the novels, if I remember. But it's something that they've kind of kept, where Han, where Chewie has this life debt to Han, and that's why he stays uh, with him. So, okay, there's that. I all buy right. that. All right. Well, now that we've reconciled all of our life debts, I think it's time that we rank it. What do you guys think? Let's do it. All you people listening along with us, check out www.flickchart.com to try out what we're going to do right here. The site provides a fun way to look at the movies that you've seen by creating a tournament-style stack ranking system that organizes movies of your choice as they duke it out for king of that movie mountain. The movies we've talked about on this show can be seen ranked at flickchart.com slash tnrfilmboard. Where do we start with Solo, A Star Wars Story? Hopefully this will be an easy choice for everybody. Solo, A Star Wars Story, or The Mummy. Solo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Gross. Yeah, that's yeah, easy. Solo. Yeah, Solo. The, the Mummy is in the middle for us? <laughs> I, that shocks me that, yes, <sighs> it is. I, I don't know how it ended up there, but uh, I think some people picked it over Batman versus Superman. Uh, that makes sense. Solo or Beirut? Easily Solo for me. Solo. Yes, solo. Solo. Solo or get out. I'm going to say get out. I'm going to say get out. Really? Oh, I still yeah. haven't mm. seen it. So we're Oh, you haven't seen it? Oh, okay. Then it's going to go get out. Yeah, so that's fine. Yeah. Solo or The Martian. Solo for me. Solo. I love me some Matt Damon science. Yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to science it. Pete, it's on, hanging on you. No, no, no. I'm The Martian. No, it's okay. Oh, you are. Okay. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're both The Martian. Pete and Andy do that Rochambeau. All right, here we go. Right, ready? Pete, ready? One, One two, three. Rock. Paper. Oh. Solo wins it. Suck it, Rock. You've failed me again. <laughs> <laughs> Solo or Split? Solo. Split. Solo. I'm going to go Split. Okay, wait. So mm, this torn is... on this one. Yeah. There's something about I'm, Split. I'm going to yeah. Split on this one. <laughs> but at least I'm not solo. Okay, so it's me and, me and Steve oh, this time. Steve, you ready? One, two, three, paper. Scissors. Solo wins. Okay. You guys are terrible at Rochambeau. They're yeah. so slow. <laughs> They're so slow. <laughs> All right, well, that does it. Solo lands at number 10. 10 nice. out of 70. So it, uh, it did a good job there. A smack dab between Get Out and Split. So there it is. That's good. Uh, how far to the next Star Wars movie? Well, the very top, um, the top Star Wars film is Star Wars Last Jedi at number two. Star Wars The Force Awakens at number three. Uh, Solo at 10 and Rogue One at 17. See, that's the thing that had, had those come up against one another, where would you have ranked it? It would be below Rogue One for me. Yeah, Rogue One is at the bottom for me. So Force Awakens is my top, then Solo, then Last Jedi, then Rogue One. That's mine. I, I think everything's fine, but I would switch those two in my, my personal ranking is that, that Rogue One would be ahead of Solo right now. Hmm. Um, hmm. I need to see it again. That's in a tough place. What about you, Steve? I think the way it is on our on our uh, chart is the way I would rank them. My letterbox ranking for Solo is a 3.5. And a like. I'm going to go four stars and a like. You're supposed to say, I'll see you 3.5 stars and raise you half a star. 
in Sabak. <laughs> I'm three and a half and a like also. I'm three and a half and a like. Next month is June, and we are fully in summer swing. We are going to be doing on the film board Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So we're still staying with the franchise thing. I know there's a lot of dinosaur lovers here on this show. That'll be kind of fun. And then now for the for the main show, TNR, you guys are doing uh, the Oceans series? <laughs> it's the Living Seas. Yes, we're doing... <laughs> It's a documentary Disney's series. We're going to do all seats. of Disney's Living Seas. Uh, yeah, we're, we're kicking off the Oceans uh, series, and we're going to do the whole thing. We're doing. Uh, we're starting off with the, uh, what was it, 1960 uh, Sinatra oh, Oceans. Cool. Uh, and then we're going to do the uh, the Oceans 11, 12, and 13. And then we're going to wrap it up with Oceans 8. So we're starting a, uh, a fun series here of Vegas heist movies. That's Looking awesome. The, the yeah. Modern Ocean series is one of my all-time faves. And of course, it's Soderbergh, so I'm super excited about that. I know. I'm with you. Andy's such a buzzkill between you and me. I know he's <laughs> going to be real trouble. That's cool. That's good. We'll get some I'm balance. looking forward to talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, we're going to be try to be a little bit more agile with the way that we plan our film board content here, and we need some more patrons signed up to bring the power to you people out there in the audience. So remember to check out our page at patreon.com slash the next reel for updated reward tiers and some promotional campaigns and send you all your film folks there to join us and join our conversation. Also, elsewhere on the web, you can find out about this show and its sibling shows at thenextreel.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at The Next Reel. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. Say goodnight, Peter Wright. (laughs) (laughs) See you later, Andy Nelson. Equal rights. (laughs) Talk to you soon, (laughs) Steve Sarmento. Uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. Uh, how are you? Sleep tight, you beautiful listeners. We so appreciate your wonderful ears. Join us again soon because at the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next. Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grand's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. 
So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. Next Reel.